0: Welcome to the Secrets of Confident Women podcast, where you'll learn all the best tips, tricks, and practical techniques for building the confidence levels you've always wanted. With inspiring interviews, real-life examples, and game-changing insights, this podcast is for women who know that mastering the skill of confidence is one of the most important things they'll ever do. Hello and welcome to the Secrets of Confident Women Podcast. I'm Anastasia Adams and together with my business partner Jody, we run Rise Women, a business dedicated to helping all women make confidence their new normal. I am so excited to be interviewing another amazing and inspiring guest today because this woman from my perspective just oozes confidence. Today I'll be chatting with Robin Fleming, the author of Skinful, which is an incredible memoir of addiction. Robin is a freelance editor with clients across the globe, and that is no exaggeration, with the exception of maybe Antarctica and the moon. I don't think there is any place in the world that Robin hasn't visited, lived in, made friends at, or run a marathon in. Robin lived in Hong Kong from 1986 to 1993, spent some time in her hometown of Albury for a while, and then spent 10 years being a global nomad from 2010 to 2020. COVID put her nomadic life on hold, unfortunately, for a few years. But from what I hear, she's at it again. And I can't wait to hear all about it. So, Robin, welcome to the Secrets of Confident Women podcast. Thank you, Anastasia. I'm happy to be here. Where is here at the moment? <laughs> New York. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. So you're back to one of your happy places.
1: Yes, it's, I have a life here. I've picked it up again after having been away for three years.
0: Wonderful. All right, well, so let's get started. Tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Well, uh, you've covered quite a lot. I'm about to turn 70. I'm single. I'm self-employed. I once had an astrologer say to me, you have a tendency to change your location instead of yourself. And <laughs> That's interesting. And it sort of rang a bell a little bit, but the idea of changing my location was novel. And in fact, before I even became a global nomad, I'd had 46 sets of house keys.
0: Oh, my goodness. I think I've had three in my
1: life. That is incredible. I know. It's insane. But, you know, I, I'm extreme. I do things to extremes. That's wonderful. The border started reopening early this year. I decided that I would resume my life as a nomad because now I had a book to promote and I could hang my travel on that for various purposes. And, you know, I'm I'm very happy to have started. I left Australia at the start of April and went back to Sarawak in Malaysia on the island of Borneo, which is one of my homes. I spent six weeks there and then via two weeks in London. And now I'm in New York. And from here, I'm returning to Greece, Bosnia and Serbia before I head back towards
0: Asia. Wow. That's actually my background. I'm Greek. That's my background. That is one of my happy places. Yeah, I try to get there every few years. Whereabouts do you stay
1: in Greece? Well, I'm returning to a place I stayed in Athens. I loved Athens. Mm. And I spent some time on the islands, but it was off-season, which I'm not really sort of an on-season person either, but yep. the island I loved most was Syros. Oh, Nice because it was a real living city. It wasn't, you know, tourist it's not touristy. No, not at all. And I loved that. I loved that it was a working port city. And it's got these two amazing cathedrals on two hills. They look like two nipples. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what it looks like,
1: like from space. <laughs> yeah. When you come into the harbour, it's like one's Greek Orthodox and one is Catholic, um, but they look like two nipples on the hills. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so exciting that you're getting to Greece. My plan is to get there next year, but we'll see. Well, I hope you can. Thank you. Um, so, yes, tell us what does confidence or being a confident woman mean to you?
1: Well, I thought about that and I came up with the sort of definition, being the designer, architect and builder of my own life. So that requires setting goals. yes breaking them down into achievable sub having the self-confidence and determination to find ways around hurdles and obstructions. Yeah. And celebrating my achievements and successes.
0: So there's a whole process to it, isn't it? It's a step-by-step process.
1: You have to be able to visualise something different from where you're at. Yes. And then being involved and accountable and taking responsibility for all of the processes along the way yeah you know I as I say I'm single and self-employed I was the eldest child and was sort of thrown onto my own resources from about age four and a half wow. and anything I wanted to happen in my life I had to make happen
0: yes so that independence was set in from a very early age yeah
1: I was gifted with imagination and I was gifted with enough ability to have success if I work hard. Yes. Nothing is presented on a platter. I'm not that bright. <laughs> no, no.
0: But I guess no. it gave you that, that foundation of from a very yeah. early age, you knew that if you set a plan and, like you said, you break it down in kind of, into achievable chunks, then yes. there is nothing that's out of your reach, right? No. As long no, as you've no, got no. A, a plan no. and an end goal in mind. Yes, yes. And I
1: do believe in goals, although I I just came across something that I said in my book. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's also important to, you know, I I mentioned something that reminded me of the, and I'm quoting now, of the transformative power of trusting in and flowing with the process of living and of not always trying to shape an outcome. Yeah. So I think we somehow have to find a balance between separating out what's your stuff to do Mm -hmm. and then enjoying the process of seeing things
0: manifest. Yeah, and accepting that sometimes you will divert from the path and sometimes it's in your control and sometimes it's not and just kind of trusting in the journey, I guess.
1: Yeah. I I think it's a challenging, straddling process, but, you know, it means that you are being the designer and architect and the builder of of your life. But you're also a participant in a process that you're not in total
0: control of.
1: And what we learn in life is how to roll with those punches.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: How to pick ourselves up.
0: Yeah, and there's that that element of, there is a certain amount of control, but sometimes you do need to let it go, don't you? It's, It's not a case of life is happening to you. No, no, no. You are in the driver's seat and you are dictating which way your life goes. But there are some things that are out of your control and you just need to accept it, learn from it, and move on, right?
1: Yes, I mean, you know, in any relationship we have, we can't drive a relationship totally in in any direction. No, that's another example of where you have to find,
0: you know, the give and take.
1: Yep, we do our part, and then
0: we can't control what comes back at us.
1: Yes, and yeah. we have a, we have a relationship with let's call it the spirit of the universe or whatever, and we have a relationship with ourselves and we have to give and take with ourselves as well as with other people and and the larger forces that operate in our lives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's all an adventure.
1: That's that's what's really fabulous.
0: Well, if anyone understands adventure, Robin, it's you (laughs) because I was just reading this book and honestly, it was one of the most incredible books I've ever read because I'm reading it just going, how is it possible for one person to fit all of this into one lifetime? It's like you never sat still. Half a lifetime, so far. Right, right. Up until this point, how have you done this much? You could find a hundred different people and put their lives together and they haven't visited as many places and had as many experiences as you have. And I just find that incredible you know, that feeling of it's never enough, I want more, I want to try more, I want to do more, I want to experience, I want to meet new people, I just find that amazing. Yes, but this is also characteristic
1: of of an addict.
0: Yes, I can see that.
1: Yes, you know, more, 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 it's never enough. But uh, my book is about my addictions, my different types of addictions and I explain why I believe I developed this part of my character. Yeah. There are positive addictions too, you know, and now there's not much in my life that's evil. You know, it's, it's all pretty positive, you know, it's for, for good. Now. Yeah.
0: That is something that I realised. There was this kind of anticipation and this almost like an anxiety as I was reading the book, going, oh, my God, what is going to happen next and where is this going and is she going to beat this and how do you work through this situation? But at the end there was a sense of peace. Mm. There was a true sense of, right, you are exactly where you need to be. And I I felt that throughout, that you were always exactly where you needed to be. But at the end, there was a really overwhelming sense of, okay, it was like a happy ending for me at least. There was a really beautiful sense of peace and you could see, you could follow that journey and go, all right, that's where it ends. And it's great. And obviously it's not where it ends, but from the book's perspective, it was a really beautiful place to finish, I think.
1: Well, the, the title Skinful means three things. I was very aware that anyone other than Australians or probably the Irish don't know the term skinful as meaning having had enough alcohol to make you drunk. So I needed yes. to explain that. So skinful means we we use that term, I've had a skinful. Mm. and uh, But in the context of the book and my personal journey over the years that are that covered in the story, It also means shedding an old skin for a new one, which I do frequently. Yes. And ultimately being comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. Now, the working title for this book, if I can just digress for a moment, was Where in the World Are My Orange Underpants?
0: (laughs) See, I've read the book, so I get that. And I love that at the end, you don't even know where they are yeah <laughs> you yes. don't know where you left them and for anyone yes. listening they just go, oh my god she's left underwear somewhere uh, <laughs> there is a backstory to this but I could totally see that as a working title for this book because it just makes sense
1: yes you know and the idea was that ultimately you know I, I wore them over my running shorts you know and they were like a super heroes outerwear outer underwear <laughs> in bright orange but you know ultimately your power lies in you it doesn't yeah. lie
0: in you know, a pair of super underpants no well I guess it's what they mean to you right and what they represent for you but you decide that yes yes so tell me when are you the most confident version of yourself
1: I may just read what I my thoughts on this because it was a very interesting question these were all interesting questions I have never been as confident of myself and as comfortable in my own skin as I've been in my 60s. Wow. It it took a while. In my late 50s, I finally accepted I was having to trade off too many things that are important to me if I wanted to keep drinking. Mm -hmm. Things like self-respect, honesty, authenticity. Now I'm able to let who I am on the inside show on the outside. And we know the narrative arc of the book is how I'm perceived by two total strangers. Yes. And the difference is not how my look has changed, but how I have
0: changed in my relationship with myself. And how that's reflected on the outside, right? What you show to the world without that sense of fear or or self doubt. Yeah.
1: It's it's confidence. Yeah. Self
0: confidence and self comfort.
1: Now I have no reason to feel shame or embarrassment, so I'm able to be that person. This gives me the confidence to stand tall, to trust my judgment, to change the things that I know need to change and mm-hmm. to accept the things I can't change, which is yes. uh, a very useful mantra in recovery. Yes. I feel that life now is an exciting and fulfilling journey and that my relationship with myself is as important as my relationships with other people.
0: Yeah. I find it incredible that you should say that you feel that life now is an incredible journey because from reading your book, it sounds like your life was always an incredible journey, but sometimes you can't see it when you're in there, can you? It almost takes hindsight or some sort of clarity or self-awareness to recognise that journey.
1: I think for a couple of decades after I left home at 18, it was a bit like a... uh, What's that movie about the bus that's out of control?
0: Oh, speed. (laughs) Yes. That's a classic case of life is happening to you. Completely out of my control. I can't dictate where I'm going. I've just got to sit on the bus and ride it out. Yes. But it's interesting. I've always had an
1: awareness when I'm at a turning point. Right. And I've had a number of turning points, I can say we all, we all do. Oh, absolutely. We all have those moments where we have an opportunity to stop in our tracks and, you know, stop doing what we've been doing, you know, and say, who am I? What life do I want to live? Yeah. And am I living that life? Yeah. And, you know, if the answer to that is no, then what can you do but try and put together the life that, you can imagine for yourself. I mean, it's, your soul will die if you say, I'm not living
0: the life that I want, but that's okay. Yeah. I find that there's an incredible sense of responsibility in that, that I think that's where a lot of people fail at that turning point, because sometimes we put it on to other people. You know, my life will be better if I had more money, if my partner was more supportive, if once my children grow up and they're out of the house, or, you know, if I live somewhere else, or if there are so many ifs that we place on ourselves when really like you said the, the true sense of responsibility comes from if I don't like my life for what it is what can I do to change it yes and I need to be responsible for that nobody else can drive that for me
1: absolutely it takes confidence to trust
0: that you will make the right decisions or just to trust that you're making the right decisions in that moment because you won't know what the outcome will be no 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 you don't so later on you might think that the decision was wrong I mean, obviously, there's never a wrong decision because you can't go back and do it again. Yeah. So it is what it is and you take the learning and you move on. But you've got to have that sense of self-belief that I will make this decision because at this point in time, this is what I think is best for me and then I will deal with whatever outcome I'm given. Yes, yes.
1: I mean, we can make very poor decisions if we're not integrated, you know, if we are. Yeah, that's right. if If we've got emotional problems that we're not, managing well as I had, Yeah, you know, there can be a lot of turbulence in life when you're bouncing from one thing to another because you're
0: not centred. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely say that.
1: Yes, and I, I would say I was very lucky to survive. You know, my life was not a horror show by any means. You know, I, I am very typical of a woman my age who learned to drink socially in her 20s and kept on yeah. doing it when things happened and used it in a different way. Drank for emotional reasons, drank for comfort. Yeah. But I never lost a licence. I never, you know, I'm way under the radar. This is called grey
0: area drinking. Yeah, so there were no direct obvious consequences. It can be very high-functioning. You weren't stumbling down the street or, you know... Well, I did, I did, I did. No, but I mean in terms of aimlessly wandering, like you said, because you'd lost your licence or because you'd been locked up for it or it was just very much an under-the-radar sort of thing. I was running marathons.
1: Exactly. You know, I, I yeah. was very high But yeah. my soul was suffering because... And I use that term, I don't know why I use that term, but it felt like whoever I was was struggling to hold myself together because my battle was on the inside. It wasn't with what was on the outside. That was just a manifestation of what was on the inside. And I was not comfortable with myself because I had, as I say, let's call it slight childhood traumas. Mm-hmm. a sense of uh, not having been nurtured enough as a child because I was the oldest of four and very quickly there were no hands for me to hold and I had to be self-sufficient. Yeah. So uh, I'm very typical, but it was a struggle to heal that pain, what pain there was. It was a struggle to heal it. I didn't know how to heal it. Mm-hmm. and And so I medicated it. Yeah. But, you know, other things were important to me enough, you know, to to go to work, you know, to have relationships, to have friendships, to, you know, to be able to enjoy things like, like in Sydney, running in Centennial Park or on Bondi Beach when I was living in. Yeah. These things are important, but it was a constant juggling act. And sometimes I fell off, I, I dropped the balls. Mm. And that would be exhausting. It is
0: exhausting. Even imagine yeah. because you can't seek, like you said, if you're trying to fly under the radar and you are in that grey area, you can't seek external support for that. It's very rare that someone in that situation would go to friends. No, you're trying to hide it rather than going to people saying, "I need help because I'm not coping." Yes, yeah. actually,
1: yes. So it's a private hell. Mm. It's all on a spectrum, of course, but yeah. it, you know, to the degree that it's hellish, it's a private hell. Yeah. And many women, I think, drink differently from men for emotional reasons, and they are in that hell. But it is possible to change. It is possible, you know, to have these turning points and say, is this the life I want to live? Mm-hmm. And if the answer to that is no, then we are incredibly fortunate to have resources available to us, to have support networks, to have social media yeah. all there. And all we need to do initially
0: is be honest with ourselves. And recognise that turning point when you see it and do something about it. I think it takes an incredible amount of courage and bravery and confidence to tell your personal story in such a really It was just a raw and authentic way, especially when it addresses a topic like addiction, which can be so sensitive and confronting for so many people. So what was it that actually gave you the confidence and the motivation to tell this story in such a public way? You're not telling friends, you're not telling family members, you're putting it out there to the world. And that takes confidence. What was it that drove that decision for you?
1: Well, as a 60-something, single, self-employed global nomad, I knew that I had an unusual story to share. And I'd always wanted to write a book. And I've made my living by working with authors and editing their books. So in 2015, I'd been a nomad for five years. I decided I would write about this life because I didn't know anyone who was living the life that I was living. And I knew that I had ability to write, but I'd never written a book of this type. It would be a learning process. But it was, as I said, it was going to be called Wearing the World in My Orange Underpants and basically a funny (laughs) (laughs) travel memoir, you know. And so I gathered together my stories and I'd been keeping a blog called My Own Two Feet. So that was sort of raw material. Mm -hmm. And when I had the first full draft of my memoir, I went to Athens for four months to complete a full draft. Yeah. The winter of 2018, 19, when I had the first full draft, it was 130,000 words and, My memoir now is 82,000 words, which is standard.
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway, I, of course, wanted people to read it. There was nothing all that personal. There were funny stories about my relationships and stuff, Mm -hmm. but there was nothing. I did have that narrative arc. I knew that my drinking story was a part of it, but I didn't go
0: really into it. It almost does read as a side-by-side memoir, though, as a travel memoir and an addiction memoir. And I felt that throughout, that it was a telling of two stories that happened to collide.
1: Yes, well... Initial early readers got very confused because they said, is this a book about running? Is it a book about dogs? Is it a book about drinking? Is it a book about travelling? I don't know what this book is about. It's about too many things, you know. And publishers who I approached said, oh, they said many things. They said, we published a book for this market. We don't know what this book's about either. We don't know who the market is. But if we do know who it is, we published a book for them already five years ago. Right. You know. So they didn't have the vision. They couldn't Mm -hmm. see who I could see, but I took that, this is an interesting thing, Anastasia, I, I took this rejection as an indication that I wasn't making my point clearly enough. Right. If they didn't get it, it wasn't their fault. Yeah. It meant I had more
0: work to do. A bit more clarity maybe.
1: Yeah, so what I did then was I got some professional feedback and and paid for assessments and they said, okay, uh, you need to make your themes much clearer. Mm -hmm. and Every anecdote needs to propel your themes or your narrative arc. It can't be, you can't have all these little, you know, offshoots and funny story for the sake of a funny story. There's
0: got to be a common thread. Yes.
1: It has to illuminate the themes. So I had to be very clear what my themes were. And I did a lot of work back Mm. in Australia for COVID. I had the opportunity to spend most of late 2020 to mid-2021 and and getting the feedback, professional feedback that I needed to help me go over it and over it and over it and make sure that everything worked. and pretty final input I had was someone in Georgia here in the States. She's a, she works with a beta reading company, uh-huh. which is a beta reader is someone who reads your manuscript as a trial reader. Yeah. And she gave me incredible feedback. She was very admiring and she filled me with confidence that I did have a story, that I had the ability to tell it better than I had to that point. But also she encouraged me, she said, go to where the pain is,
0: mm-hmm.
1: go to where it hurts. Because in telling the story, I'd skimmed over everything that was under the waterline.
0: Yeah. Under the wine line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's actually a really interesting passage on page 41 that I found interesting and I think it may be because I saw that word, everything we do is around confidence. So I saw that word confident and went, oh, there's something in here and I just, I found it so relatable and I think so many women could find it relatable. You say, it had been a horrible year. I'd gone into it feeling confident and excited by the potential and challenges it held, but the energy I had put out hadn't given me any of the returns I'd imagined. Now battered and bruised by the blows to my self-confidence and by the breakdown of relationships with people I respected and liked. I would have to dig deep and rediscover my own strength and resilience. And I thought this paragraph was so powerful because I think so many women have instances like this in their lives where they feel that their self confidence has been battered and bruised. And, you know, for you, it was certain catalysts. For other women, it's other things. Uh, But I was curious to find out was this a hindsight realization for you at the time that you wrote the book? Is it something you realized at that point that this series of unfortunate events had taken its toll directly on your confidence? Or was it something that, you actually felt in the moment that it was happening? Was there that self-awareness around the impact that this was having on your confidence? At what point did you see that?
1: I was aware of it at the time, but in the final work I did on the manuscript where I was looking at at the emotional content more closely and adding more reflection, mm-hmm. this book contains narrative you know, stories, self-contained stories almost, and conversation and the reflections are the parts that the reader can put themselves in the story. Mm -hmm. They may not be able to put themselves in the story where I'm climbing a mountain in Nepal or running a marathon in Iceland, but they can put themselves in a story where it's about emotions. Yeah. So... You know, I was aware when I was adding those sort of reflective passages that these were making it a far better book because this is what the reader would relate to. But when I had that experience itself, I also was aware. I was in a very... I'd had a terrible year in Hong Kong. I had friendships break down over through mixing business and friendship. Yeah. I had been humiliated in business meetings because I hadn't done the work I needed to do to prepare for them. I was drinking every night to cope with this feeling that I was floundering in in this life that I'd created. Mm -hmm. I'd overstretched myself. So I went as far and I was living in Hong Kong and I dismantled everything. And I said, I'm going as far away from here for a break as I possibly can. Where is the furthest place on the planet from Hong Kong? The Outer Hebrides off Scotland.
0: <laughs> <So> I- <laughs> <laughs> you
1: literally picked the furthest point from Hong Kong. I did. I did. And, uh, and it was winter and it was bleak and it was cold. So I went there so as to be as far from that experience as possible. Mm-hmm. I think I recognised I was at a very low ebb in terms of my self-confidence I needed to put myself in a remote, beautiful, natural environment to clear my thoughts and get perspective on this year I'd just been through. Mm -hmm. And I say in the book that I saw the start of a new year and it was also the start of a new decade and I'm a big one for starting things on the first, you know, first day of the week, month, year, century, millennia, you know, (laughs) (laughs) these are all opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. So I saw it as the opportunity to make a new start and I would change the things I could, Mm -hmm. but I didn't at that time change the one thing that was really underpinning everything else. And that was my dependence on alcohol,
0: white wine. I find it fascinating that you said, you knew that your self-confidence was suffering and yet, and we talk about this all the time that you can be confident in some areas of your life and not in others. And Mm. you were quite aware of the fact that your self-confidence had taken a blow. Mm. And yet you still had the confidence to leave everything behind and start fresh somewhere else. And that takes an an amazing amount of courage. And I think that kind of speaks to, you know, there are often times in life where women will say, I've lost all my self-confidence. And the truth is you never really lose all of it because you can be confident in some areas of your life and not in others. So you clearly Mm. had lost your confidence when it came to your business and, you know, your ability to interact with certain people. But that confidence that you had, that was, it's a constant theme through your book. That confidence to travel and rediscover and reinvent yourself in new places—that never left you. It didn't no. matter how much you, your confidence was affected in one area of your life; you still had the confidence to to move to the other side of the world, literally. And I think that's something that a lot of women can take away from this: that you know, you may be out of work for ten years because you've had children, or, or something's happened, or you know, you've been a carer, or something's happened in your life, and you lose that sense of self-confidence. But it doesn't mean that your entire perspective of confidence is gone. There are still things that you have confidence in. It's about kind of digging really deep and, and rediscovering it and bringing it to the surface, I think.
1: You know, I think there's something to say for doing, you know, a SWOT analysis on yourself occasionally. Mm. occasion
0: Yeah, absolutely, a self-check, yeah.
1: Or, or doing it with someone who can give you a, an outside perspective and say, you know, but you've got these skills, you know, you've got mm. these qualities. Just to be reminded, because we're habitual beings, someone who's nomadic, I love routine. As soon as I arrive somewhere, I set up my routines. I used to, it used to become funny because I'd have the same thing for lunch every day. If I was in Florence or Budapest, I'd find, you know, a favourite thing and I'd say, if I want something different for lunch, I have to change countries. <laughs> because That's fantastic. I so caught up in my routines, you know, my rituals. It's but, not funny. Uh, yeah, but a SWOT analysis I think is useful mm. because... We forget that we have some abilities or we, we forget that they actually have
0: names, that they are a thing. Yeah, because our brains are just primed to pick out the worst in our lives and where we've failed yes. and where we haven't lived up to the standards that we've set for ourselves. But every time we achieve something amazing, like just the fact that you left a life that you'd created and invested so much time and effort and money into and picked up and moved to the other side of the world, that in itself is an achievement. But we don't see it at the time, right? We yes. just go, oh, my life is not working for me and I'm just going to move. But your confidence has gone in one area and it's come up in another. And I think so often as women, we don't recognise that. Yes. We, we pass over that strength that we have in making change yes. because we are feeling battered and bruised.
1: When I was back in Australia recently, I had an opportunity to go through some things I'd had in storage for 10 years and I found mm-hmm. some old journals from the 1980s when I was in my early 30s, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm constantly dithering about men, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and really, you know, journaling can be more usefully employed mm-hmm. to debrief from situations and think what could I take away from that, you know, yeah. what strength should I display,
0: how could I, you know. And revisit it at a time when you're not as emotional, right, because you're writing yeah. it in an emotional state, but then if you read it back later on, you're seeing it with different eyes. It's like yeah. you're reading someone else's story. So you will almost give yourself different advice. Yes. Because you're coming at that experience differently.
1: I think building self-confidence is like training a muscle, you know, mm-hmm. to perform a task. You know, you go to the gym the first time, You think, there's no way I can do that. There's no way I can lift that weight. There's no way I can do this Pilates exercise. But, yeah. you know, you can.
0: You can absolutely.
1: You just can't do it once. You cannot run a marathon by taking two
0: steps. Yeah, absolutely. We say that all the time, that it is a skill and it is a habit that you need to develop. And it takes tools. It takes techniques. It takes recognising where you need help and finding the tools that work for you and then just keeping at it. Consistency, persistence, determination, and you'll develop that skill just like you would anything else. And like you said, you don't wake up one morning and run a marathon. It takes a lot of hard work. Yes, and you have to take, there's no shortcut. A marathon is
1: 42.2 kilometres. You Mm. cannot run a marathon in 20 kilometres. You have to cover every one of those 100 metre distances. Yeah, absolutely. There's no shortcut. Another essential thing is a sense of humour and being able to laugh at yourself. Put yourself in, you know, get a grip, you know, have a laugh and think, okay, well, I screwed that up. But, you know, I learned this. And, you know, i come at it from this this way next time. And, you know,
0: life is meant to be fun. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we talk about that too and we say give yourself a personal high five. Yeah. If you failed at something yeah. and something didn't work out, just kind of high five yourself and go, well, there was that, and then just move on. Take the learning and move on. Because if we take it too seriously, I mean, we get to the end, a lot of misery, a lot of heartache, a lot of anxiety, and no learning. You can't learn in that state. Yes, and really you've got to own your stuff and you've, you've got to be honest with yourself. Yes.
1: Fix the things that need fixing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Be honest with yourself. Own your stuff. Be able to laugh at yourself. Be courageous. Be optimistic. It's mm-hmm. easy
0: to say all of this stuff. I know, but it takes work. It practice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they're all brilliant techniques that you you do. You adopt them, you find what works for you and you keep going. And we often talk about surrounding yourself with the right people as another technique to help build your confidence and create that life that you want. And I noticed that this is a recurring theme throughout your book because you always seem to just attract the most incredibly interesting people in your travels because I think you're open to that. You you always seem to be open to meeting new people and then you you make these connections and you keep them. You make a conscious effort to stay in touch with so many of them over the years so that whenever you travel back there, you've got those friendships ready to go. And that doesn't happen overnight. That's an investment. You work hard on that. Um, And you speak later in the book about the people who you met in your meetings and how they inspired you. What is it for you about having certain people around you that gives you the confidence to want to become a better version of yourself and to create that life that you want?
1: Well, I'm very sociable. I need a lot of time to myself I really need a lot of time to myself I work from wherever is home yeah and and in my downtime I still need a lot of time alone in my head it's no longer like a part of the
0: Bronx where you wouldn't want to go alone after dark yeah you're not afraid to go in there and have a look at what's going on in your head and yeah yeah it's working with you not against you anymore that's great
1: quite a nice place to be and I enjoy being there and I amuse myself and everything, but I'm very sociable, you know, and I do, I can make quick connections with people who feel like my kind of people. But also there can be people I meet in a very fleeting way who I only have the dimmest perception of. I know nothing about them. But there's something that makes me think, I'd like to stay in touch with you and get to know you. And so social media and Facebook have just been extraordinary. Tomorrow morning I'm going down to the Lower East Side in New York here to have coffee with a guy I met on a subway platform seven years ago in New York.
0: That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Just met a guy on a subway platform. We're having coffee tomorrow
1: after seven years. Yes. We very occasionally like stuff but we've been aware of each other yeah and, and we share a great interest in photography and so we have a date tomorrow to meet up but I wanted to say that it's important to me even though I, ha- I need a lot of time to myself mm-hmm. to engage with people and yeah. to engage with places that I'm calling home whether it's for
0: two weeks a month two months mm-hmm. or three months but is it a certain type of people that you are intentional about keeping in your network is it the type of people who encourage you, who make you want to be a better version of yourself or who add some sort of value to your life or you can see that you add value to their life perhaps?
1: Yes, it's about some of all of that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I want the same quality connection anyway. Yeah. So I don't need drinking buddies now, for example. Yes. You know, and I sat at a lot of bars late into the night with a lot of people for many years who really I wasn't interested in at all, mm-hmm. just so I could keep having another drink.
0: you know. This because they the filled, well, they ticked that box at that time of your yeah. life, right? Yeah. They were that person that you needed at that time.
1: Yes. But, you know, now it's important to me. This thing about engaging with people who make me, you know, a better version of myself is mm-hmm. very important. Yes, of course. You know, I want to find that person brings out my empathy, mm-hmm. you know, compassion my humour, that they interest me, that I interest them, that they're interested in things outside of their own little world. You know, I look for these qualities. A broader
0: mind, a different perspective.
1: I do want, you know, when I make a strong connection with someone to feel that I'm learning from them. Mm -hmm. That You know, I have a lot of room in my life to squish up to allow someone else in. Mm -hmm. It's funny, it's, it's not like there's only a limited capacity. I, I know a lot of people mm-hmm. who seem to have very limited capacity and I I found that a little going back to Australia for the two years of COVID. I went back to my hometown. Everyone's got their social networks already.
0: And they're not interested in expanding. They don't
1: really have space for a single woman who's pushing 70, mm-hmm. you know. Whose life is completely different from theirs. Yes. Like even my brother hasn't read my book. Yeah. Um, my sister's not
0: interested in reading my book. Their lives are much more closed. Well, I suppose in that respect, you'd then surround yourself with the same type of people, right? The same type of people who like to live their lives in smaller bubbles. Whereas I find that the people that you're connecting with are so much more kind of broad-minded and they're open to seeing the world and learning from new people because we like attracts like. So if you're that person and you need these people or you want these people in your circle to, to create that lifestyle that you want and to have that network and those connections, then you will attract the same types of people. I don't think broad-minded people necessarily attract smaller-minded people because it's hard to make that connection with people like that if you don't have common interests. Yeah.
1: I know. So friendship is different from just being visible in a community. I also want to be visible in a community. I'm not a bucket list Mm traveller. I don't have any interest in travelling in order to tick off a list of sites. I want to have experiences within, to be a part of a community, Mm -hmm. to I try and create something in a community. I've created communities. I created a community of women working in publishing in Hong Kong. In Australia, I created a community of dog lovers who would bring dogs to the dog's breakfast once a month. I tried to set up a dog's breakfast in Hungary, in Budapest. But, you know, a friend called me a border collie because I'm always herding people. But... (laughs) But... Could I just read, there's just a scene in my book that explains this. I used to do a morning run in Ubud in Bali. It was a very short street and I described what the street was like and the people who I would see there every morning. Mm -hmm. And we would greet each other. I remember this scene, yep. Yes, lama pagi, pagi, good morning, morning. And I say, these people couldn't know how much pleasure it gave me to be one of them, one of the regulars in this place, an extra in their story, because I've just explained how they are an extra in my story. Yeah. Someone they were now used to seeing each morning, the foreign woman who jogged up and down the cracked roadway in a kind of rapture as the sky lightened. Mm-hmm. So one of the triggers to my poor behaviours, of which there are many examples in the book, my dummy spit, is... Feeling that I'm invisible. Right. And this goes back to childhood stuff of being neglected or perceiving that I was neglected. Yes. So if I walk into a store and someone behind me gets served before me and the person serving peers not to even see me, I'll get very stroppy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I try not to, but I do. That's your trigger. Yeah. It's a trigger. Yeah. You know, so it means a lot to me to be in a place and have a routine. I enjoy routines.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: See people doing their routines, but but for them to see me too.
0: This yeah.
1: is to me. So these people I don't have to have a friendship with. I
0: just need to engage with them and that it can be saying "good morning, every morning. And I suppose there, there would be confidence that comes from that because once you engage in that way and you do feel that sense of community and you do feel like you're there because you live there, you're not a tourist in that area. Yes. You then live your life differently, don't you, because you're living as one of them. You're not living as a tourist. I haven't come to, like you said, you know, tick off the sites that I've come to see. I want to drink coffee where you drink coffee. And I want yes, to have dinner yeah. where you have dinner and I want to walk the back paths that you walk when you go to and walk. I want work to, and I
1: want to do karaoke in a bar with the woman who cleans my hotel room.
0: Right. Yep. Yeah, I think that says a lot for you surround yourself with the people who you want to give you the life that you want. And if you want that life of feeling like you're a part of a community, yes, then you yes, engage yes. with the people who will give you that sense of community, right? Yes. So there's this bit in Chapter 23, and I found this interesting because my ex-husband has done Kokoda Trail, and he said it's one of the most challenging and rewarding experiences he's ever done. You talk about trekking the Kokoda Trail, and just after you'd climbed up to the Emita Ridge near the end of the trail, you say, I sat on a boulder for a while and had a little cry. And a little later, you say, there was nothing to say I couldn't achieve whatever I set my mind to. So for Jodie and I, this is the epitome of confidence, that that really deep knowing that I can do anything I set my mind to. And I'll find yeah. a way. There's always, you know, it's like water. It will always find a way in. And that's that deep sense of belief that I can do anything I try. Everyone knows Kokoda Trail is ruling and it's character testing. And I can only imagine the thoughts that you would have had at that time on that boulder that led to those really strong emotions. Were well, there times throughout the trek though where you lost that sense of self-belief, you know, that kind of it, it wavered? And if so, do you have any techniques or what did you do to find it again in order to keep going? Because I think that's, It's a metaphor for life. There are times where, you know, life will be grueling and it challenges us in ways that we've never imagined and it takes something to dig down and find that sense of self-belief again in order to keep going. So do you have any, you know, advice or any techniques where you feel like I've hit a wall and I need something, I need to find something to keep going?
1: I hope this will answer that question, Anastasia. I thought about that a lot. Kakoda is very tough. Yeah. And I was very respectful of how difficult it was going to be. And I trained appropriately. Yes. So that I had the best chance, not just of completing it, but of enjoying it. Yes. Different experience altogether, right? Completing and enjoying. So that moment when I knew that I would finish. Yes. It was very tough. Uh, they were tears of happiness that I shared near the end of the trail. Because I'd set a goal, I'd figured out how to achieve it, and I'd taken all the necessary steps to get there. So this right. is a constant theme with me.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that sense of accomplishment.
1: Yes, my porter kept calling me a strong girl. You know. <laughs> he, he was twenty, and yeah. I was fifty-six then. So you know, I was pretty pleased that he acknowledged that I was strong. I was, in fact, the uh, there was only one other woman. She was half my age, and I was. Was one other man who was slightly older than I was. So I was up there. I was, yeah. In fact, with all the 30 year old football guys, I was invisible.
0: You oh, know, absolutely. Yeah. Because
1: you don't fit into their world. Yeah. What do you mean? But also, you know, at that time, I was still drinking and I was setting yeah. these sorts of goals as a way to moderate my drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, but by not drinking so much, I was able to achieve those goals. You know, yeah. it was okay. It's duh. a bit of a cycle that you're trying to get yourself into, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So, anyway, um, after Kakoda, I immediately upped the ante and signed on to trek to Everest Base Camp in Nepal and I tell in the book the story of what happened about that goal. Yeah. I don't think in, at Kokoda or elsewhere I ever lost my sense of self-belief. Mm-hmm. I always knew that if I did the work that was required, I could achieve any task I set myself. I never lost that yeah. knowledge about myself, whether or not I was prepared to do the work. Yeah. Fluctuated a bit. Yeah. And, of course, the hardest journey can only ever be taken one step at a time. In New Guinea, this is a strategy, in New Guinea Mm -hmm. for Kokoda, I remembered the Australian and Japanese soldiers who had fought battles there. So Mm -hmm. when it it got particularly hard, you know, when it was gruesome, Mm -hmm. you know, I remembered that people had... Fought there in the mud in heavy battle gear and for their lives. Yeah. You know, so it's always good to put things in a perspective, perspective. yeah absolutely the same thing, when I went to Gallipoli I went to a dawn service mm-hmm. and I nearly froze it was one of the coldest I've ever felt mm. but my grandfather had fought at Gallipoli and you know I could say okay well I'm waiting for the dawn and I could hardly I couldn't drink tea
0: because my hands were shaking so much but no one is shooting at me Yes, and I'm, I've come with my coat and my beanie and my gloves and my scarves and they didn't have that luxury. It's so true. Mm. It's about getting perspective on a bigger picture, isn't it? Almost like a bigger problem. Yes, whenever I feel sorry for myself, you know, it's generally because I've lost that sense of perspective. I think that's an incredible technique. Again, it's like a self-check, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes.
1: Mind you, I can't always turn my mood around even by doing that, you know, and I, I've done monumental dummy spits in Iceland and the Caribbean and in India for one reason or another. Yeah. And, you know, I will always be a
0: work in progress mm-hmm. in many ways. As we all are. I know yes. exactly what you mean, yeah. It's that sense of I'm committing to trying to be a better person at the very yes. least.
1: Yeah. I have a very strong awareness that comes from the confidence yeah. that I'm privileged to have the opportunity, the imagination, the abilities and the stamina to
0: mm-hmm. live
1: any life I want to create.
0: Right, and that comes from an incredibly strong sense of self-belief, I think, because there's never any doubt there. There may be doubt as to the process or the outcome, but that sense of I can do this if I put the work in and if I try and if I can commit to the process, I can make anything happen, I think that is the ultimate core of confidence.
1: The main impediment to my living a happy life Mm -hmm. was my drinking, yeah it took me forty years. I drank for forty years. It took me twenty years to realize I had a serious problem, yeah, and struggled for twenty years to to keep my drinking moderate under the radar. Mm-hmm. I failed. I stopped drinking every now and then. I was always every day aware of whether or not I would be drinking, how much I could drink. you know that was the main impediment to my living a full and happy
0: life mm-hmm. and a self-expressed life.
1: I had to finally say enough already, this is the one thing that's wrong with my life Yeah, and it's going to affect everything. I have to man up and Mm. say it's time, Yeah, which is what I ultimately
0: did. Yeah, I think that's actually a great segue into the next question because there's a section where after having been sober for six months, you mentioned some advice that you were given by friends in recovery to adopt spiritual practices to help you with that resilience that you had to find for yourself. And you say that even though you weren't religious, you instead learned to recognize your emotions and label them whenever you needed to work on your well-being. So basically, you develop this practice of acknowledging how you were feeling by putting those feelings into words, right? So I feel happy. I feel content. I am grateful rather than allowing those emotions to consume you. Mm. So Jody and I often talk about this and about affirmations and power mantras that we have to repeat to ourselves. And we know that. So many people are averse to this idea of affirmations. They think it's very airy-fairy and very fluffy and they don't actually realise that they use them all the time. We all affirm Mm -hmm. all the time, whether it's good or it's bad, whatever you're saying to yourself in your head, whenever you repeat a feeling Mm -hmm. or an emotion or a thought to yourself consistently, and that could be a I am happy, but it can also be a I'm not good enough or a, you know, I don't want to do that or I can't do that. These are all affirmings. You are affirming a belief that you have about yourself so, how do you feel that these affirmations that you're repeating to yourself at this time in your life—the I feel happy, I'm, you know, I feel content, I am grateful—how did these affirmations help you create the mindset that you wanted, and how valuable do you think that they were in maintaining your sobriety and that sense of confidence in being able to maintain your sobriety?
1: I don't know that I use affirmations as a tool in quite that way, although I would benefit by doing that. They had the same effect, but, yes. But we do we do need to be careful of the messages we send ourselves because they do manifest. Yeah. I think my thing was that, you know, they are powerful aids in framing our thoughts, but I think we have to be authentic as well. Yes. So you can't impose that stuff from outside. It's somehow got to come up. So I'm, I'm sort of taking a different tack from you, but I, I do totally get what you're saying and I do totally believe we have to be very careful of the messages we send ourselves and and veer heavily on the positive side.
0: Well, our brains are primed to go to the negative. It's our primal instinct to go to the negative. So I think that means that if you want to have a positive and happy and self-expressed and self fulfilled life, you intentionally need to push yourself to the positive because our natural default is negative. Yes.
1: And this is where self-compassion comes in as well. Yes. You know, that may be true. This we, we're not great about this aspect of you know managing our lives, but mm-hmm. have compassion for ourselves. But I'm trying. Yes. You know, I'm 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 on the right path. I'm not there yet. So try and be compassionate and forgiving of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I mean give yourself a breathing space to, to change. You know, we can't do yeah. everything all at once.
0: And give yourself permission. Yeah, this came up in another recent interview that I did, this idea of giving yourself that space and that compassion and that permission to put the ball down every once in a while or, you know, accept that this didn't work out and and it's okay. Yes. Or that you can't take on this new thing or that you are cracked in some way and it's okay. That that sense of permission and compassion I think is so valuable because as women a lot of us don't, we don't give ourselves that. We always expect to stay at a very high standard a highly functioning standard. Yes, women,
1: we do. But for me, those were ways for me to feel feelings I'd been trying not to feel. Yes. Uh, And I say in the book, when I stopped drinking, Mm -hmm. I no longer awoke in fear after a night of drinking, anxious about what I might find or recall. I -hmm. was more aware of my surroundings, of things that were not me, I was better able to see beauty in the ordinary everyday world and to consciously acknowledge the pleasure I felt in noticing small things, a shaft of light in the market hall, the taste of hot banana, the wrinkles on the face of the flower seller, the sound of laughter. So when I used to term, I feel happy, I Mm -hmm. feel grateful, I feel content, this was a way of acknowledging feelings that I had been trying to numb. Yeah. But also I needed to acknowledge when I felt uncomfortable feelings. I feel sad. I feel disappointed. I feel lonely. These are not affirmations. These are acknowledgments.
0: Mm. And labelling an emotion so that it doesn't consume you.
1: Yes. And I needed to say I feel lonely, I feel sad, I feel disappointed. Mm -hmm. I I have had an experience just this week. I, I feel puzzled. Mm-hmm. By way of friendship, a close friendship has changed, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to do with the feeling. And I said to the person, "Something's different. I don't understand it. I'm puzzled. I feel sad. You know." And their response hasn't helped me at all. So I'm still left alone with those feelings. Mm-hmm. Now, a part of me wants to lash out, unfriend them on Facebook, you know, do all that stuff. Yeah. The saner part of me wants to just say, just let it be, take your hands off the steering wheel with this one. You know, it's probably got nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. Most likely has nothing to do with me. But, you know, I, I'm used to having some of these feelings
0: and knowing how to do it instead of drinking a bottle of wine over them. But one of the first ways to deal with them is to recognise them, right? Yes. Yeah, and I think that works for, for negative and positive feelings. One of the best ways to make the most of them in your life and, and truly feel them and be able to move past them is to label them and recognise them. Yes, yes. And not just let them kind of cloud your judgement and blur your thoughts. Yes. Uh, there's a great part towards the end of the book where you say, and I think it ties in with this well, you say, I was starting to better understand that my thoughts and beliefs could influence how I feel about whatever was happening. My feelings didn't need to be the boss of me. Yeah. So how do you think that intentionally managing your thoughts and feelings can help you regain control of your life and boost your confidence? What, what connection do you think exists there?
1: Well, that all came from this relationship with my father where he was the boss of me in ways that I considered were unfair and unjust and randomly violent and, you know, and, and I didn't want anyone to be the boss of me. And yet, mm. ironically, I created a situation where my addiction was the boss of me. Certainly I need to use both. I need to Mm -hmm. uh, feel my feelings, acknowledge my feelings, but then stand back from them. Don't be ruled by them. Yes. I I can act completely erratically if my feelings are in, in control. Unchecked, yes. Yes. So I'm far better if I can put them in perspective, stand back, Learn when to say, okay, you need to change this Mm -hmm. and someone else needs to change something so I'll feel better. I'm in control, but I need to know when I need to change something, when not to change something, as in this relationship Mm -hmm. with this friend. Mm -hmm. So certainly, you know, bringing all my faculties Mm -hmm. to play. So you can only do that, I think, when, when you're confident that, You know, you've got this amazing sort of uh, machine at your disposal Mm -hmm. and it's got all sorts of capabilities and, you know, we can make it function incredibly
0: well. We use all the bits In our best interests, right? We need it to function in our best interests and do what's best for us and work with us, you know, not let it run riot and work against us.
1: The The other thing I do is I... I like to take very early morning walks, 5.30, 6.00 p.m. I really love doing that with a friend because it's often not light yet. The start of the day is a very positive time for me Mm -hmm. and there's an intimacy walking side by side with someone and just, you know, what's said on the walk stays on the walk. You know, you get that support. You get a lot of affirmation, you know, a good friend. But I also use professional services when I need to. I, mm-hmm. I talk to a counsellor because a lot of this is new to me. I've only been sober for 11 years. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what people, a lot of people have learned through having long relationships, bringing up children, a lot of life lessons, I've not had the opportunity or the willingness to learn. Yeah. So I seek the same way I did when my book got to the point where I couldn't, I needed someone else's perspective on what needed to be done. Yes. I I do a Zoom session with a counsellor
0: every fortnight through an Australian Mm. service. It's great to kind of create that sense of external perspective taking because people, other people can see things that we can't. We're in the middle of it. Yeah. And you need someone to kind of clear out all that dust and, and just go, this is what you need to focus on, or at least to drive you towards that and to give you the tools to equip you to not be bogged down by all that emotion and, you know, all those feelings, I think there's value in that with counsellors, with coaches, with mentors, with having those people around you who can support you at a time when you feel like you need something extra, more than you can offer to yourself.
1: Look, I apply that same rule in all parts of my life. We are in charge of our own lives. We can decide Mm -hmm. how we want to use our lives. I don't want to spend it ironing.
0: (laughs) Neither do I. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to spend my life washing dishes. I know I have to. I don't want to. <laughs> but there
1: are things you can subcontract, and I yeah. decide myself what I'll subcontract. You know, mm-hmm. and my mother could never understand why I'd have clean, and I'd say, well, for a start, what would take her two hours would cost me this much money and lost income. But she doesn't quite true. Yes, she didn't quite understand that that thinking. That's a simple formula. The opportunity mm. cost of my time cleaning is too great to clean. Yeah, that's no right.
0: Work. And a lot of your work was virtual, right? Remote. Yeah. But you could work from anywhere at any time. So your time is, so it's not like you're sitting in an office from nine to five.
1: No, no, no. no. Your
0: time always has other value. Yeah. That you don't want to spend cleaning.
1: And I had enough confidence in the validity of how I choose to use my time. Yes. You know, it's important to me to read, to watch good films, to watch documentaries, to get exercise, to prepare healthy meals. I put my time into areas that support the life I want to have. Yes. And things that don't interest me, that take up valuable time, I'm confident that I'm better off spending the money to pay someone else Outsource to do Outsource it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that includes
0: some counselling mm-hmm. in areas where I'm not sure-footed. Yeah. So, yeah. Amazing. Well, we've reached the time in our interview where we do our Rise Women final power questions. So these are just, I think it's five or six quick, short answer questions. You know, we ask everyone this. At the end of the year, we do this amazing compilation where we've together everyone's answers, and it's great to hear you know, different perspectives. So your first question is, what do you wish every woman knew? That it is never too
1: late to make a new path to a different future. Oh, I
0: love that. That's great. Because that applies to everyone. What is your superpower?
1: I think we've been over this. I think my superpower consists of three parts. My ability to visualize something different, which helps me to set my sights on an outcome or a personally meaningful goal. Uh-huh. my determination to overcome obstacles along the way and my gratitude when I've reached my goal. It's
0: a three-pronged superpower. Three-pronged superpower. Wonderful. So we have this shoe thing going on because Jodie and I love our heels. Heels or flats is the question. In my head, I'm thinking hiking boots. Am I right? No, just flats. Just flats. Okay.
1: Yeah, a girl should be quick on her feet. You know, I see I see. <laughs> Teetering on ridiculous heels, and I think they
0: look very vulnerable. That's funny because I can run faster in heels than I can run in flats. <laughs> I've never fallen over. I think that's my superpower. Of it. I've never fallen over I think it in heels. Yeah. Every time I fall over and hurt myself, it's in flats. Wow. And I think that's a mindset. Like I love being in heels. I love the confidence it gives me, and it it changes my posture, and I walk differently, and I walk more. I'm more sure on my feet in heels than I am in flats. So it's funny, yeah? it's funny you should say that. Yeah, I, I sort of get what you mean, but for me it's the opposite. It's flat. it's definitely flat for you. What is your favourite quote or rule that you live by? Joseph Campbell, your life is the fruit of your own doing. Complete control. You make it what you want it to be. I love that. Who inspires you and why?
1: I'm inspired in some ways by nearly everyone I meet. Mm-hmm. Everyone can teach us something. If only to try not to be like them.
0: (laughs) Inspiration comes in so many ways, doesn't it? Okay, so finish this sentence. If I had even more confidence than I do now, I would. Probably be very annoying. It would be hard to imagine you with any more confidence that you have. and I, I do I find it fascinating that you say there were times in your life where you lost confidence because in your book, and I, I strongly recommend that everyone reads this book, it's incredible that there are times where you say I lost my sense of self-belief and my confidence and yet you were still doing things that for most of us take incredible amounts of confidence. And yeah, I do. I find that fascinating. It does make sense that yeah if you had even more confidence than you do now, I don't even know what you'd be doing. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that's it for today, Robin. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on our podcast and for having this amazing conversation with me that I know all of our listeners will love. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank Thank you. you. And to everyone listening, thanks again for supporting Rise Women and for helping us get our message of confidence out to everyone. This has been an international podcast episode so you will hear some background noise but it's all good it just adds to the authenticity of it if you've enjoyed this episode please feel free to like subscribe and share with your friends and remember as we always say with confidence anything is possible bye for now